Welcome to Eco Living, a podcast about ways to reduce your impact on the earth, from cutting your greenhouse gas emissions to minimizing land and water use. I'm Adam Weiss. Eco Living is a co-production of Narara Eco Village and the Narara Eco Living Network, and is based at our demonstration eco village outside of Sydney, Australia. Today, I'm talking to Andy Marlowe, an architect, a passive house designer, and a director at Envirotecture. Andy and Envirotecture have been friends of Narara Eco Village for years, and they were sponsors of the recent inaugural Eco Village Experience Weekend, which we greatly appreciate. Andy's joining me today from the Envirotecture offices in Sydney to talk about Passive House, a building design technique that's recently started to really catch on in Australia. Welcome, Andy. Hello, Adam. Thank you very much. So Envirotecture, as listeners can probably guess from the name, focuses on environmentally sustainable architecture. But you do have a few things that you do more than others these days. What are your specific areas of expertise? So the company's been around since the mid-90s when my business partner, Dick Clark, gave up being a builder and designer and focused entirely on design. So we've been around for the best part of 25 years now. And we do what I guess we would call sustainable design. And I guess what's interesting there is the way that the definition of that has evolved over the years. So the things we've done have definitely changed. We're based in Sydney, as you say, that's where the office is, but we work all over the country. And we've got a fairly strong history of passive solar design. And that's sort of threaded through everything we've always done. The technology's changed and a whole bunch of other things have evolved over those decades. Um, and what we've seen change quite dramatically in the last maybe five-ish years has been the uptake of passive house in addition to passive solar design. And when I've talked to people about passive house versus passive solar, they get them confused. So just since we're talking about passive house substantially today, can you define what passive house is and how it's different from normal passive solar design? Because they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? No, no, there's a lot of positive crossover, but there's a couple of key differences. Um, so Passive House originates in Germany. First one was built in the early 90s, and it's got five key components, which are insulation, or appropriate amounts of insulation, eliminating thermal bridges, appropriate doors, windows, and shading, um, has air tightness, and it also has mechanical ventilation with heat recovery. So the differences with passive solar in some ways are quite small. The key one is a focus on air tightness and the provision of mechanical ventilation. So the orientation of the building, um, getting your glass facing the right direction, shading west and east um, from sun in you know in a sort of Sydney or Australian context, all of those things are very consistent with passive solar. So anyone who's been doing passive solar, it's a really easy leap into passive house. But the key difference is around the air tightness and the provision of that uh, mechanical ventilation. And from what I understand, by having those additional pieces, you can have a bit more flexibility in some of the orientation and things because it's a higher performance house than a normal passive solar house, meaning that if you have a, a difficult block, you might still be able to get some really good results. Oh, definitely. So the, one of the biggest selling points for pa certified passive house is the fact that it makes a whole bunch of what we would politely term crap blocks um, become very viable all of a sudden. Depends on your climate, of course, but because it treats the whole building as one envelope and assumes that the whole building will be warm and comfortable or cool and comfortable, depending, all year round, your ability to, to achieve that is just you're freed up so much more because it's not reliant on necessarily getting winter sun into the living room, for example. We've got a bunch of certified houses. I think 
two of the four that we've actually got certified at the moment both have north to the street, which is not ideal. Um, so yes, there's massive flexibility. And because of the nature of the design process and the and the design tool that does the thermal modeling, um, the accuracy involved is phenomenal. So therefore, you really can answer the question, if I make that window 10% bigger, what difference does it make? And the answers are always spot on. So it sounds like there's a lot more precision from a technical perspective. But what's the big advantage of a passive house over other types of design? One of the advantages in a certified passive house is that the levels of indoor comfort are just incredible. It's mainly due to feeling comfortable because the surfaces around you are going to be warm all of the time. So on a cold morning, you're not going to experience cold sitting next to a window. Um, you're still going to be warm. You're not going to experience the outdoor temperatures coming through, obviously in a, in a heating context. Now, um, one of the, I guess, cheeky sort of responses to being comfortable in a house is, oh, we can just pump it full of energy. And of course you can. If you want to do the cheapest thing on earth at the moment, the best thing you can do is build the cheapest, crappiest house you can, put a large solar system on the roof and get a very big air conditioner. That will technically deliver comfort because you can have an indoor temperature that is what it should be, but you won't have indoor comfort because you'll still be sat next to a cold window. You'll still experience what we call radiant asymmetry, which is feeling cold next to a window that is very cold. And also it doesn't work particularly well in heat waves. So it's a slightly cheeky answer, but really passive house isn't about energy efficiency, although that's where it originated. It's actually really about being healthy and comfortable. And it turns out from a building physics perspective that if you want to be healthy and comfortable, you end up with a very energy efficient house to achieve that. And how energy efficient can a passive house be? Um, on average, in terms of the heating and cooling energy, they use between 75 and 90% less than a code compliant house. So extremely little. And oh, yeah. what about compared to if you were to say just a, I don't, you can't really call a standard passive solar design, but if you were to talk about like a seven star house in Australia, how much better would you do with a passive house? That's a trickier question to answer because what we tend to find is that the energy savings may not necessarily be huge, but what no one's picking up on easily because it's basically tricky to measure is the comfort. So we find that a lot of passive solar houses, due to the nature of the people who've consciously built and designed them, is that they tolerate wider temperature ranges. So they might go down to 16 in winter and up to 28, 29 in summer, and they might be okay with that, and that's their call. But in a certified passive house, you're sitting between 20 and 25 degrees all year round. So there's a little bit of the balance between energy use and comfort trade-off, and that's really personal preference at the end of the day. But it sounds like you basically can get more comfort for the same energy use at the very least. Oh, definitely more comfort for less energy use, for sure, because you've got an airtight envelope and everything is controlled. So when you say airtight, how airtight is airtight? What do you really mean? The answer is a lot tighter than we're used to in Australia. So... Most homes um, are fairly leaky, and most people, as we record this at the start of June, would be experiencing that as, as a big cold snap, and you can feel the drafts coming in from all over the place. So a certified passive house has a blower door test done at the end of construction in order to prove that it is airtight. The definition from them is 0.6 air changes per hour. So that means that every hour, your, the volume of your house will change 0.6 times. Um, by contrast, the average Australian new home is 15.4, so 23 times more leaky. So we're talking about a significant decrease in basically annoying drafts getting into your home. So if you live in a passive house and it's cold out or it's windy out, you shouldn't feel it. Correct. 
Okay, so that's one of the big differences. But if you've sealed up your house, you need air, right? So how do you get that air in? That's where the mechanical ventilation part you mentioned comes in, I assume. Indeed. So in order to maintain good levels of indoor air quality, we need outdoor air. Um, Fresh air is an interesting concept. We'll refer to it as outdoor air because it depends where you are as to whether it's actually fresh. So these are a fairly simple box inside, inside the building somewhere, normally in a laundry um, there's two fans. One's bringing air into the house all the time. One's putting air out of the house all the time. Those two air streams pass. They exchange the heat from one to the other, and they also filter the air as well. So what this means is that the when the air comes in, if it's zero degrees outside and 20 degrees inside, the incoming air will end up being about 18 degrees rather than zero, which is what happens when you open the window. So the key thing with the mechanical ventilation really is that you're getting outdoor air, it's getting filtered, and it's coming in at a temperature that is way more desirable than opening a window, which is, of course, your alternative. The practical issue is that when it's cold, people don't open windows. And therefore, if you don't have the mechanical ventilation, you don't have any new air coming in. And then you start to get indoor air quality problems, whether that's increased humidity, which can lead to mold and condensation, or whether it's just increased CO2 levels, which are just not good for people. So does a passive house end up with better indoor air quality than a leaky house because of this mechanical ventilation? It certainly ends up with more consistent, good quality indoor air quality. In certain situations, so at the right time of year, when it's 23 degrees outside all day and drops to 17 at night, you could live in your house with the windows open, Have assuming outdoors is fresh, you could have really good indoor air quality. The problem is that while that occurs in some most places in Australia at some point during the year, it is for maybe a month total at best. And therefore, for the other 11 months, you would have fairly average to or terrible indoor air quality. But in a passive house, when it is that perfect time, you can still open the windows, right? Oh, yeah. Of course. And you should. Well, you should do whatever you like. Um, But yeah, there's nothing stopping you open the windows. The key point is you don't have to. So the first certified house we finished is sandwiched between a fairly busy local road and the main northern freight line. So, you know, the freight train goes past at 4 a.m. So you don't want to sleep with the windows open, even if it is nice outside, because who wants to wake up to a freight train? So yeah, you can run the house however you like. You also talked about thermal bridging. This, I assume, is trying to keep the cold or the heat outside, but it's not just insulation. It's it's insulating more than just the walls, right? Correct. So thermal bridging is normally referring to, I guess, the tricky bits. So in a sort of standard home, the the general weak points would be uh, windows and door frames, the slab edge detail where the wall and the floor meet, assuming it's a concrete slab, and also anywhere that steel is involved. Um, So really, you're trying to cut off those thermal highways from inside to outside. So depending on which one of those situations it is, it's sort of trickier or not, but all of them are achievable. It's partly around heat transfer and, and the comfort that comes from that additional heat transfer, but mostly it's about condensation risk. Because if you have particular cold points, say from a steel beam coming from inside to outside, then you can get real condensation risk problems at that location. Now, I've heard about people sealing up their houses and that causing problems for them. So what can go wrong with this kind of design, say, if you didn't have all of the pieces quite right? 
That's a really good question. So passive haste, when you really strip back what it is, is actually a quality assurance scheme. So it's a way to ensure through the modeling process and through the certification process that the building does what it was modeled to do, what it said it would do, and that it actually happens. Therefore, the things, the, the times and the horror stories when it does go wrong are almost without exception never in a certified passive haste. They're always in a, you know, we had a bit of a go haste. And therefore, it's because they didn't do everything. It's a holistic solution and it needs to be applied holistically. To answer the question more directly, um, the one thing that will go wrong really easily is people sealing up a house and not providing mechanical ventilation. Technically, you can achieve the ventilation through opening doors and windows frequently enough. But in reality, when you work out what you need to do, it means you need to open the windows for 20 minutes every three hours, which includes when you're asleep. So you need to set an alarm for midnight, 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which, of course, nobody does. In that situation, that's when you end up with lower oxygen levels or more mold or more condensation or any of those things because you're just not letting the air flow where it normally would or where it needs to. Correct. And probably all of those at the same time, because they all kind of come together. Yeah. Okay. Well, that doesn't sound very fun. But if you do it right, and it's and it's actually designed and built with this quality assurance, then it's designed to not do that, basically, right? Correct. And there's a phenomenal amount of peer-reviewed research about how consistently these buildings work exactly as they were modeled to work. So, yes. Maybe you could talk about that for a second, because you've got this quality assurance. You know, If you build a certified passive house, how much closer is it to what you wanted than if you build another kind of house? Has that been quantified in any way? Kind of yes and kind of no. So what they've, what they've quantified a lot is what did the modeling say our certified passive house project would do and what did it do? They've been doing this for decades. They've been doing it on new builds, on retrofits, and the correlation is extremely tight. It does vary a bit, which is nearly always when they do deep research um, to do with occupant behavior because um, they look at energy use generally and therefore obviously somebody can keep their home at 20 degrees or 22 degrees or 24 degrees during winter and therefore that would impact on energy use. Um, the assumption in the modeling is it wouldn't go below 20. So there's variation, but it's very, very small. To compare it against what you get in the average Australian home is tricky because their software isn't really designed to tell you how much energy it would use. Um, and it's a bit like trying to compare uh, apples and computers. They're just not even the same thing. It sounds like there's a lot of advantages to this, but there's also a lot of additional pieces and, and literally some extra moving parts. How much more does it cost to build a house like this than a normal, very well-designed, environmentally well-performing and you know, well-insulated house? That's always the million-dollar question. So if the home is being designed by a designer and built by a custom builder, i.e. it's not a project home, then in a Sydney-like climate, um, we maintain that with the right design team, there should be no cost uplift at all. With the right design and construction team, there shouldn't be a cost uplift. Fundamentally, you spend extra money on air tightness and a ventilation unit, but you spend less money on air conditioning systems because you massively downsize your air conditioning unit, and those things should about balance out. So for someone that is thinking of building a house, if you were going to go that route of having it custom designed, and if you're not getting something off the plan, then you would be able to get very close in cost to what it might otherwise cost. But it, it is the difference of fundamentally between a cheap house and a custom designed house, but not any more than that. Indeed, indeed. 
Okay, that's a good way to think about it. What about how it's made? I mean, we hear about lots of, you know, eco-friendly houses that are made of hemp, cob, straw bale, all sorts of different things. Can you make a passive house out of different things or is it all kind of normal timber frame construction? You can make it out of anything. One of the interesting things with passive house is it's fairly agnostic on a lot of things. Its focus is healthy, comfortable, energy efficient homes or buildings. And that's it. It doesn't really care how you get there. As long as it's safe from a thermal point of view and from a moisture mold condensation risk point of view, you can make it out of anything. So there's ones in Australia that have been made from the sit-up straw bale panels. Um, there's a hemp one under construction in Victoria. A huge number of them are timber framed because it's just a sensible, fairly cost-effective way to build houses. Um, but there's no limits on what you can actually use. Thinking about everything you've said about passive house, it sounds like one of the big advantages in it is, in a sense, it's versatility. The fact that you have this protection from the outside environment, whether that environment is hot, cold, full of bushfire smoke, full of pollen, whatever it is. So in my head, that sounds like a fairly climate change resilient house, because as the weather gets more uncertain, it could be a different world outside one day or the next. We're having heat waves in the winter and cold snaps in the summer. Does a passive house deal with that better than other types of houses? It certainly does. All of those things are happening and obviously increasing and more erratic timeframes. The key thing that really got us to get on board with Passive House was about five, six, seven years ago when we hit the realization that a lot of our clients were still needing to put in air conditioning. And this is in a Sydney projects. Um, and it's really around the fact that as soon as you need to air condition your buildings, and we think that in Sydney, we are there now where you really do need it in order to remain healthy during a heat wave. As soon as you want to air condition a building, then you want to be airtight because you don't want to lose the energy. You want to have really good doors, windows, insulation because you want to hang on to the cool that you create and prevent the heat coming in. So as soon as you accept you need some form of mechanical heating or cooling, really following logic and building physics, you just end up describing something that even if you don't use the words is remarkably similar to a passive house. So due to the nature of the of the buildings and how they're designed and constructed they respond actually they respond quite slowly which is almost what you want so when extreme events happen it takes the building longer to either warm up or cool down whatever it may be which gives you the opportunity to turn on a device that will basically achieve comfort more swiftly so you get an incredible resilience to um, the massive cold snap in Texas a couple of years ago. There was some fantastic data from people living in passive houses over there where they had managed to stay not cold, um, which was, I think they'd stayed above about 14 degrees inside their houses for about four days, and it was minus 40 or something crazy outside, whereas other people were experiencing three hours before they couldn't stay inside the buildings. And that was without electricity, right? Correct. That was just the people in the house. That's just totally passive. No ventilation, obviously, so that's sort of helping, but the indoor air quality wasn't going so good. Um, but obviously, in that kind of scenario, you don't, you know, indoor air quality, yeah, you'd like it, but you're not going to go outside in minus 40 to trade it off. And in that kind of situation, a power outage that lasts several days, there's plenty of air in your house, right? Talking hmm. about it being airtight doesn't mean that you're going to be in health trouble. It just means that you can hide in there for a little while and be safe until the power comes back on. 
Oh, totally. So I'm talking about CO2 levels getting higher than you ideally want them to be. I'm not talking about it in a genuine, it's going to cause you health issues way. I mean, the high CO2 levels are shown once they get above sort of 5,000 ppm to be, you know, problematic, but you need to be exposed to those for considerable amounts of time, which is funnily enough what happens to most kids in most schools in Australia. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, we're not talking about that kind of health issue. I mean, the, the, the converse health issue is that you die of hypothermia, whether you go outside and die in the minus 40 or for a whole bunch of other people staying in their own homes where it was getting down to sub-zero temperatures inside. Uh, and, you know, people died. It was truly horrific. And this was also in Texas, which is not a place that most people associate with being that cold. So it's the extremities, the supposed unpredictability, although, of course, somebody's always predicted something. And, yeah, it's a resilience thing. It's, in my view, the only sensible response to the world we currently face. That information from Texas is pretty incredible. These tweaks that you talked about to the standard way of doing things can clearly make a massive difference. If people listening to this want to experience what a passive house is like, can they visit one? Well, normally that would be quite tricky because most of them are privately owned. But fortunately, at the end of June, on the 25th and 26th of June, it's International Passive House Days. So there's four of them open across Sydney, Saturday morning, afternoon, Sunday morning, afternoon, um, different houses. And you can find out about that through... Uh, other company website, which is called Passive House Design and Construct, or through the Australian Passive House Association, who we're partnering with on those days. It's free. Each house is open for about three hours. There's no particular time. Just rock up and have a look and have a chat and see what you think. Great. So we can put a link to that on the website along with this podcast. If people want to learn more about Passive House or learn more about you, is that website that you suggested a good place to go? Or where would you tell people to go to learn about these concepts and about Envirotecture and, and Andy Marlowe? Um, Envirotecture website is a good place to start. So envirotecture.com.au. Um, the Passive House Design and Construct website, which there'll be a link to as well, is also a little bit about one of our sidelines that we're using to try to speed up the increase of Passive House in Australia and also the Passive House Association, the Australian Passive House Association. They've got some great resources on their website. They're a great organisation doing good work and they're a good sort of repository for all of those sort of things you need at, at the beginning stage. That's great. We'll include those links on the website as well. Listeners can find them at ecolivingpodcast.com. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this great information with us today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Adam. And thanks to all of you for listening. For more information about Passive House, about Envirotecture, or about Andy Marlowe, visit the Eco Living Podcast website at ecolivingpodcast.com. I'll make sure that all the links we mentioned in our conversation are there for you. If you want to learn more about Narara Eco Village and Eco Village Living, visit nararaecovillage.com. That's N-A-R-A-R-A ecovillage.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to our feed to get all of our episodes for free. And definitely feel free to send a link or audio file to anyone who you think might enjoy it or learn something from it. Hopefully both. We have all the links you need to subscribe to or share the show on the website. Until next time, I'm Adam Weiss.